0: This is Reaction. Movements, Moments, and Monsters of the Reactionary Right. Episode 6 Terror on Screen, Part 1 Introduction. On September 12, 2001, Warner Brothers announced that it would be indefinitely postponing the October 5th release of its upcoming movie, Collateral Damage. In the film, Gordy Brewer, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, seeks vengeance after his family is killed in a bombing attack at a downtown city skyscraper. Touchstone Pictures also made the decision to postpone the September 21st release of the comedy film Big Trouble, which featured a failed terrorist plot and Sony pulled a trailer of the upcoming Spider-Man movie in which Spider-Man ensnares a helicopter between the now-destroyed Twin Towers. All three of these films were eventually released the next year, but their delay speaks to how traumatized the nation felt in the period after the September 11th attacks. We just weren't in a place where we could enjoy the explosions and terror threats that had characterized action films for decades. Or maybe that's not entirely true. After all, our TVs showed the plane impacts and collapse of the towers on repeat for weeks afterward. So maybe it's more accurate to say that we didn't have the appetite for fictionalized attacks. How could they compete with the real thing? Everything about American media shifted after 9-11. News coverage took on a more nationalistic, pro-administration slant. TV ads for airlines were pulled for months, and when they returned, they focused less on the pleasure of flying and more on low prices, as bookings fell 50% after the attacks. For four days after 9-11, major networks canceled all regular programming and went ad-free. Commercials for Coke and Budweiser and pharmaceuticals seemed inappropriate. Once they returned to the airways, ads were generally more patriotic, even nationalistic. Ford signed a deal with Toby Keith, whose 9-11-inspired song Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue became a hit after the attacks. You'll be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A, because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Dozens of movies and TV shows were edited to remove the World Trade Center, and even stranger, some had the towers digitally added in. Munich, Watchmen, and X-Men Apocalypse, to name just a few. The 2002 re release of E.T. The Extraterrestrial changed the dialogue of a scene in which the mom told her son he couldn't dress as a terrorist for Halloween. You're not going as a hippie, she now said. Other changes took longer to percolate. The old black and white, good and evil dichotomy was less appealing to viewers, and TV and film representations of terrorism became more complex, more ideological, and more about leaving space for the viewer to navigate moral ambiguity. Producers walked a tightrope between trying to avoid harmful demonizations of all Arabs and Muslims and giving viewers what they wanted, justifications for the war on terror, providing an evil enemy that sought to destroy Western civilization. The Bush administration worked closely with Hollywood producers to curate messages that would support the White House's aims. In November 2001, just weeks after the attack, Bush advisor Karl Rove met with 40 entertainment executives to discuss programming partnerships. Many of the tropes about Arab Muslims that had been developing since the 1980s were kicked into overdrive. As the U.S. military's presence in the Middle East grew, both on the ground and on the screen, Muslims were presented as corrupt sheiks or religious fanatics. The Gulf War, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and the conflict between Israel and Palestine had all primed American audiences for the post-9/11 terrorist, hell-bent on waging a guerrilla war against the West. Media scholars have even speculated that these pre-existing stereotypes helped fuel public support for war in the Middle East in the aftermath of 9 /11. In this series, I'm going to analyze some popular media depictions of terrorism after 9/11. Now, I'm not a film theorist. We're not going to be talking about camera angles and color palettes and psychoanalytic theory. I'll be sticking mostly to plot, as well as how these media objects fit into the larger conversations about the war on terror. I've broken these analyses into 3 categories: the government agent fighting domestic terrorism, the traumatized civilian, and the boots on the ground in the Middle East. There are probably hundreds of post-9/11 films and TV shows dealing with terrorism, so narrowing it down was tough but I've tried to pick a few themes that cover a range of tropes, and to capture some similarities as well. The first episode examines a U.S. counterterrorism agent battling not only terrorists, but the constraints of the very entities he works for. 24's Jack Bauer doesn't play by the rules, and thank God for that. No one else could really get the job done. The second episode will focus on civilian trauma after 9-11, with Rain Over Me and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. They're two tales of people losing their loved ones in the attack, searching for closure and normalcy in a world that's anything but. Finally, the third episode looks at the experience of U.S. forces on the ground in the Middle East. In the 2012 film Zero Dark Thirty, a CIA analyst hunts down public enemy number one, Osama bin Laden. We'll compare it with the biographical film American Sniper, which follows the story of the deadliest marksman in U.S. history, Chris Kyle. Both films demonstrate the ways Hollywood has papered over the controversies of the war on terror and lionized American forces. At the center of these stories is the assumption that terrorism is so uniquely threatening and dangerous that any actions can be justified. Rules can and must be broken. Tough guys, and they are almost always guys, have a responsibility to do whatever's necessary to protect their families or the general public, and sometimes both. There's no room for weakness or second-guessing or even thinking things through all the way. What's needed is action, now, before it's too late. In her book, The Terror Dream, journalist and author Susan Faludi lays out some of the surprising ways that gender shaped our 9-11 response. Women writers like Susan Sontag and Barbara Kingsolver were crucified for their relatively mild criticisms of U.S. imperialism. A few shreds of historical awareness might help us understand what has just happened and what may continue to happen, wrote Susan Sontag in The New Yorker. Rod Dreher responded in the New York Post, I wanted to walk barefoot on broken glass across the Brooklyn Bridge, up to that despicable woman's apartment, grab her by the neck, drag her down to ground zero, and force her to say that to the firefighters. A response that seems a bit hysterical, if you ask me. The New Republic compared Susan Sontag to Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, an ally of evil. Susan Sontag will occupy the ninth circle of hell, declared former New York Mayor Ed Koch. When Barbara Kingsolver argued that it was our civic duty to learn honest truths from wrongful deaths in the Los Angeles Times, The backlash was severe. A reader wrote to the Times that King Kingsolver's essay was nothing less than an act of terror and pure sedition. In the San Francisco Chronicle, she wrote, Patriotism seems to be falling to whoever claims it loudest, and we're left struggling to find a definition in a clamor of reaction. It occurs to me that my patriotic duty is to recapture my flag from the men now waving it in the name of jingoism and censorship. Shortly after, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed lambasting Kingsolver alongside a cartoon of a woman with wild hair on a soapbox wearing an I Heart Osama t-shirt. Readers shipped copies of Kingsolver's novels back to her with notes like, I don't want this trash in my house. Rinse and repeat for writers Arundhati Roy, Naomi Klein, and many others. 9-11 was the death of feminism, critics claimed. No place for feminist victims in post-9-11 America, read a headline in the Houston Chronicle. Aggressive machismo was the only antidote to the vulnerability we were forced to face. We had grown comfortable and weak in our 20th century decadence. The new millennium would be the age of the manly man. Enough of this feminizing garbage. That's what got us here in the first place. As Peggy Noonan, former Reagan speechwriter and current NBC contributor, wrote in the Wall Street Journal, from the ashes of September 11th arise the manly virtues. In a New York Times op-ed just six weeks after the attack, Patricia Lee Brown wrote admiringly of The Return of Manly Men. They are the knights in shining fire helmets. They are the welders, policemen, and businessmen with can-do attitudes who are unafraid to tackle armed hijackers, even if it means bringing down an airplane. The operative word is men. Brawny, heroic, manly men. She even directly framed this masculinity as a media object. In contrast to past eras of touchy feeliness, Alan Alda, and the vaguely feminized, rakish man-child of the 1990s, Leonardo DiCaprio, the notion of physical prowess in the service of patriotic duty is firmly back on the pedestal. The article also quotes conservative gender critic Camille Paglia. I can't help noticing how robustly, dreamily masculine the faces of the firefighters are. These are working-class men, stoical, patriotic. They're not on Prozac or questioning their gender. But Faludi argues that this narrative of masculine heroism took a serious toll on the very first responders the media was swooning over. The inconvenient truth in the aftermath of 9-11 was the grand scale of failures that directly led to the mismanagement of on-the-ground response. When the 9-11 Commission tried to investigate what led to the deaths of 343 firefighters, city officials protested the very idea of an inquiry. Such an investigation would dishonor the heroes. Witnesses, and even firefighters who survived the events, reported that the command structure had failed, the radios didn't work, no one heard the evacuation order. In the eight years since the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the FDNY top brass had done little to learn from the past and prepare for future attacks. Mayor Michael Bloomberg wrote a letter to the 9-11 Commission stating, We know for a fact that many firefighters continued their rescue work despite hearing maydays and evacuation orders and knowing the South Tower had fallen. But many of the firefighters who were at the towers reported never hearing the evacuation order at all. Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor of New York City at the time of the attacks, showed his hand that myth-making was the true urgency of the day. Rather than giving us a story of men, uniformed men, fleeing while civilians were left behind, which would have been devastating to the morale of this country, we got a story of heroism, and we got a story of pride, and we got a story of support that helped us get through. But who exactly gave us that story? The firefighters who were under-equipped and under-trained for the attack, who now have lifelong ailments caused by the debris at Ground Zero, who continue to be overworked and underpaid for the dangerous work they do? Did they suffer and die to give us a comforting narrative of masculine heroism? Or did political figures and media commentators craft that narrative because it sells, because it makes us, and them, feel better? Every year in the United States, more than 30,000 people die in car accidents. More than 40,000 people die from suicide. And nearly 100,000 die from excessive alcohol use. But the 3,000 people who died on September 11th have had a comparatively outsized impact, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. Why is that? Why is it acceptable for 16-year-olds with partially formed brains to operate 4,000-pound machines at 70 miles per hour, but we can't bring a bottle of shampoo on an airplane? Why is alcohol sold next to Tic Tacs while the government has spent $3 trillion on counterterrorism since 9-11? Well, lots of reasons. Counterterrorism, like the rest of the military industry, is lucrative. In 2019, more than half of the Pentagon's $676 billion budget went to private military contractors, and these companies have armies of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to ensure that the money keeps flowing. But it's also ideological. It says a lot about what we as a society consider to be acceptable risk. Dying in a terrorist attack is the height of tragedy. Dying in a car accident is business as usual. And it's also the spectacular nature of terrorism. The twisted rubble of an SUV just can't compete with the twisted rubble of ground zero, especially if one gets nonstop media coverage while the other is just part of a morning news traffic report. I'm not trying to say that the 9-11 death toll is no big deal. Who cares? It's only 3,000 people. I'm saying that it should give us all pause, that it should make us interrogate what our priorities are in terms of public spending, as well as the sheer amount of cultural energy we put into fears of terrorism. What we worry about, what we fear, what we decide we should spend our precious public funds on are not natural, inborn truths. They don't materialize out of thin air. We aren't evolutionarily hardwired to care more about bus bombings than electrical fires. It's constructed. Sometimes it's constructed in the mundane, day-to-day activities— the If You See Something, Say Something sign at a train station, the terrorist hunter permit sticker on the back of a pickup truck, the recorded voice telling us to never leave bags unattended as we pull our laptops out of carry-on bags, spread our legs, and raise our arms over our heads while strange machines scan our bodies on our way to Thanksgiving dinner. But it's also constructed in large part by our media consumption. We watch the planes hit the towers, watch the towers fall, watch the people jumping to escape the flames over and over and over again. We watch action movies filled with bad guys and nefarious plots, one after another. We turn on the TV to see fictional government agents save urban centers from dirty bombs. When I was planning a series on post-9-11 in The War on Terror, I wasn't quite sure what direction to take. I chose the media angle because that's largely how we've experienced it. Unless you or a friend or a family member has served in the military, your only glimpse into the war on terror is on a screen. And that's a real problem, I think, because that removal from what's happening on the ground in the Middle East allows us to largely ignore the consequences of our actions there. Out of sight, out of mind. It also gives Hollywood producers and the interests they serve —the market, the ruling class, the government, etc., enormous power to shape the narrative about the war on terror and that's what this series is about unless you're living off the grid in which case you likely aren't listening to this show we're all drinking from the same cup of ideology of course we all have different levels of acceptance of those narratives media literacy the ability to read and be critical of the narratives that are presented to us is a muscle you have to develop one that the education system in the U.S. has failed to tend to. This is bad. A public that votes and spends and has to live with each other in community desperately needs the ability to think critically about what we're told from on high. But that's a project that's obviously a bit beyond the scope of this podcast, so instead, we're going to tease apart some of these narratives about the war on terror to see what they say about us. In addition to the three episodes I've already told you about, I'll be doing two episodes for the Patreon feed. One looks at two films made before 9-11, to give us an idea about what has, and hasn't, changed about our conceptions of terrorism. The first is the 1985 film Invasion USA, in which Chuck Norris fights Soviet and Latin American communists trying to, you guessed it, invade the USA. The second is the film I mentioned at the start of this episode, Collateral Damage, which offers a peek into American ideas about terrorism on the eve of 9-11. The second Patreon episode will look at two satirical films, Team America, World Police, and Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Both films reveal the stereotypes and tropes that undergird American imperialism and xenophobia. Think of it as a bit of a palate cleanser. Team America is definitely the more reactionary of the two films, and it does more to justify America's self-imposed role as world police than to challenge it. But hey, this is a show about reactionary politics, so we might as well try to laugh at some of it, I suppose. And it also gives us an example of how reactionaries don't always have to be so serious. I've tried to write all of the scripts in such a way that you can enjoy the episodes regardless of whether or not you've seen the content. But there will, of course, be spoilers, because it's hard to talk about this stuff in any meaningful way if you don't know how it ends. So whether or not you want to watch any of these before listening to the episodes is really up to you. Before I go, I want to take a moment to give a really sincere thank you to everyone who has signed up to support the show on Patreon. It's really humbling to have your support after only five episodes, and I hope I can continue producing quality content deserving of your patronage. This is a one-woman operation, and producing the episodes is incredibly time-intensive between research, writing, recording, and editing. My ability to do this show long-term will depend directly on the support I get from listeners. So if you want to be a part of that, head on over to patreon.com slash reaction podcast. Even a dollar a month helps. And if you want to help in a way that doesn't cost a thing, tell a friend about the show. Preferably a rich one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at reactionpodcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.